0: Our Gospel reading this morning comes from the book of Mark. It is brief yet powerful. Mark 1, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. May God bless our understanding of this sacred text. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you can believe it, it is going on eight years ago now that I stepped into this pulpit for the first time. I preached about baptism that morning because it felt right to begin with the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. It felt good to commence with the commencement of our life in Christ. It also seemed like a fitting kickoff for a preacher ordained in a tradition that baptizes adults by immersion, starting a ministry in a congregation of the United Church of Christ, which uses considerably less water for the sacrament. If you were there on my first Sunday, perhaps you remember me reflecting on the disciple practice of baptism by immersion. It was one of the things I accepted with a raised eyebrow when I made the decision to become a member of a disciple congregation. The whole thing just seemed a little old-timey to me. A practice I associated with fanatics and fundamentalists, not progressive Christians. I had been baptized as an infant, which felt like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Since disciples are universally opposed to rebaptism, I could join the church without having to get my hair wet. And then, not long after I became a pastor, one of the teenagers decided she was ready to make the good confession of faith and be baptized. I was delighted and petrified. I guess I knew at least theoretically, that I wasn't going to be able to get away with staying dry forever. But the whole idea was still so intimidating. There are logistics involved with immersion baptisms. There is plumbing involved with immersion baptisms. The chair of the Properties Committee was feeling a little fuzzy about how to fill and drain the church's baptistry. It had been a while. And since she'd seen the fear in my eyes whenever it came up, she suggested we do a trial run of the whole thing. We would meet in our swimsuits a week before the big day, fill up the tank, and I would dunk her as many times as it took to figure out the best way to ensure that the sacrament didn't last uncomfortably long. I ended up immersing her a good seven or eight times, so much for not believing in rebaptism. We giggled the whole time, joking about how holy she would be by the time I was through with her. We laughed until tears rolled down our cheeks as we pondered what the custodian would say if he walked in while we were swimming around at the front of the sanctuary. As I waded into the baptistry, the morning of that first baptism, I was ready. Both the baptizer and the baptized surrendered that day. The ordinary yet sacred waters of baptism flowed between our fingers and toes, warming us, washing us, drenching us. After I gently lowered the girl into the water, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. She said it was like getting a bear hug from God, a goofy metaphor for a wonderfully goofy practice. I did have a pang of regret after the service as the drain gurgled and cleared. I've always wished that I had switched places with my baptismal guinea pig during our practice session, just so I, too, could know what it felt like to be fully immersed. But there's a part of me that likes that baptism by immersion is something I can only imagine. That seems to be a spiritual practice of sorts, one that you are welcome to borrow if you like. All you have to do is recall a time you've been soaked, swimming in a lake, taking a bath, getting caught in an unexpected warm summer cloudburst, and layer over that experience the words of blessing God speaks to each of us. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. You might even make a habit of it every time you happen to chance upon water. There is a whole lot of water in the world, from teardrops to oceans. All of it poised to become sacramental, a means by which God might express grace. If you believe anything you hear within these sacred walls, I hope you believe this. God calls you beloved. Trusting God's love, knowing deep in our bones that God looks upon us and is delighted is not only the foundation of faith, it is the foundation of a life well lived. We have to know who we are and whose we are to find our way in this world. But knowing our own belovedness is not enough. We must know the belovedness of others. This too is foundational. As one writer put it, I am confident because I believe I am a child of God. I am humble because I believe everyone else is too. This may sound simple, and it is in the best possible way, but there are profound ramifications to proclaiming that we are children of God, that we are all children of God. Sometimes there are even political ramifications. This week we heard a lot about comments allegedly made by the President of the United States of America. I will not repeat them. The Reverend Dr. Terry Horde Owens, who is the first black woman to serve as president of my Disciples of Christ denomination, wrote these words of response. As Christians, we believe that all humans are made in the image of God, and are therefore worthy of dignity and respect. We are called to love, and Jesus tells us that we will be known as his disciples if we have love for one another. There are certain roads that love cannot take. Love cannot take the road of discrimination. Love cannot take the road of hate. Love cannot take the road of oppression. Love cannot take the road of racism. Love cannot take the road of gender bias. Love cannot take the road of homophobia. There is no justifications for hateful and racist comments. None. As the nation prepares to honor the birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., I remind all those who claim to be followers of Christ to speak up against injustice, to work for human dignity, for peace, and for equal justice for all. Dr. King was most disappointed that those who called themselves Christians were telling him to wait until a more judicious time for action. Today it is clear that we still cannot wait. I call upon those who believe in the dignity of all persons not only to speak, but work together to rid our nation of systemic injustice, to register to vote, and to hold those who are not in solidarity with basic human dignity and justice to account. Acts of charity and songs of unity will not be enough to dismantle the structural injustice that exists in our society. We cannot allow such hatred to stand unchallenged, and we cannot be silent or inactive in the face of words and actions that violate the commandment of Jesus to love all, all whom God has created. As another Christian leader noted this week, The world cannot be confused about what we believe. Do you truly believe you are a beloved child of God? Do you truly believe that everybody else is too? Let there be no confusion. Let there be no equivocation. Let there be no turning away from our oppressed brothers no dismissal of our abused sisters. Let us be so fully immersed in the love of God, so deeply drenched in the grace of Christ, so completely submerged in the Holy Spirit that we become makers of peace, seekers of justice, witnesses of truth. With our lips, and with our lives. Amen.